From 1936 to 1939, the New York Yankees won four consecutive World Series titles. They bested their own record ten years later, winning five in a row from 1949 to 53. A look at any of the great five-year stretches in baseball history always includes the great New York dynasties. There is an often overlooked franchise, though, one almost synonymous with losing for so much of the 20th and early 21st centuries. For one glorious stretch between 1906 and 1910, the Chicago Cubs were as good as any team has ever been in the history of the sport. Over a five-year stretch, they averaged 106 wins. The Yankees never did that. I'm Terry Bonadonna, and on today's episode of Chicago's Civil War, we get to relive that Cubs dynasty, perhaps the best in National League history. We'll also be introduced to the baseball palace of the world and dive into one of the most thrilling postseason series ever played. In the first week of October 1906, the Cubs were the best team in the world. A week later, they weren't even the best in their own city. Frank Chance returned to his home in California during that offseason determined to seal the deal the next year. His resolve come spring rubbed off on the rest of the squad. Were it not for the 1906 club, the 1907 version of the Cubs would probably have gotten credit for being the best in baseball history to that point. They came roaring out of the gate to a 23-4 record. That meant that going back to the previous July, they had compiled a 78-12 record over their last 90 games. Amazingly, the Giants got off to an even better start in 1907 at 24-3. But this is where their reign as Kings of the National League officially ended. The Cubs went to New York, took two of three from the Giants, and watched New York play 10 games below 500 the rest of the way. If the first half of the decade belonged to the Giants and Pirates, the Cubs were proving definitively that the second half of the 1900s was theirs. They steamrolled through the league on their way to a 107-45 record. On offense and defense, they were a machine, but where they really shined was on the pitcher's mound. In an age when many teams used three- or four-man staffs, the Cubs may have become the first in the game to employ a five-man rotation. Not because they were trying to be innovative or rest their pitchers' arms. They just had five great pitchers and no one to keep on the bench. Mordecai Brown, Orville Overall, Carl Lundgren, Jack Fister, and Ed Royalbach may just have been the greatest starting rotation in the game's history. Together, they threw more than 1,000 innings and posted a total ERA, a total ERA of 1.43. Even in the dead ball era, that number is astounding. Perhaps as astounding, the Cubs won the pennant over Pittsburgh by 17 games. After July 15th, their lead was never less than 10. All around Chicago, fans anticipated the second straight Crosstown World Series, and why shouldn't they have? It was obvious early on that nobody was going to approach the Cubs, and for most of the time they were cruising, the White Sox were able to stare across leagues right at them, from their own perch atop the standings. Every big league city is insanely jealous of Chicago's two wonderful teams, read the Chicago Inter-Ocean. Like the West Side Club, the Southsiders brought back their entire team from the pennant winners in 1906. The only change in the lineup was forced by the owner, Charles Comiskey, who promised George Rowey a starting job and a spot on the roster for as long as he wanted it. That move proved short-sighted, as Rowey batted just 213 as a full-timer. In the spring of 1908, he was released and never played Major League Ball again. But he was always remembered on the South Side as the man who beat the Cubs for the 1906 World's Championship. The Sox spent the majority of 1907 in first place, but this time their lack of offense caught up with them. They fell out of first for the last time on August 28th. 
Frank Isbell, one of the team's top hitters, got hurt and missed the last month of the season as they went 17-17 over their final 34 games. The Tigers finished five and a half games ahead and took the pennant. For the first time since the White Sox came to town, there was no talk of a postseason series between the Cubs and the White Sox. The Cubs were content to go to the World Series and the Sox to go back home and prepare for next year. There was some lament in the local media that the town would not devolve into civil war in 1907, but many believed that the Southside supporters would jump on the Cubs bandwagon at least for one week. As far as Chicago fans were concerned, the American League pennant was just a formality because the Cubs were out for blood. After another dominant season, they would not let the title of world's champion elude them again. Game one of the World Series came down to the wire with the Cubs trailing 3-1 in the ninth inning, but they rallied to tie the score before it was eventually called a tie due to darkness. That was as close as the Tigers would get to a win in the series. The Cubs outscored them 16-3 over the final three games, and Mordecai Brown pitched a shutout in the finale. For the first time in the modern era, the Cubs were World Series champions. Maybe the only person disappointed in the result was Charles Murphy, the Cubs owner, who had sold out his park for the sixth game. The Cubs didn't allow it to get that far, and Murphy would have to settle for the gate receipts of just three home games. Well, if you liked 1907, you certainly would have enjoyed 1908 as well. For the second straight year, the Cubs won their pennant while the White Sox narrowly missed theirs. In 08, though, both races were considerably closer. In the American League, it came down to the final day with three teams vying for the title. The White Sox needed to beat the Tigers and have the Cleveland Naps lose to the St. Louis Browns to capture the flag. Alas, they didn't get either outcome, as the Tigers won the AL for the second straight year. Ed Walsh had one of the most sensational seasons a pitcher would ever have. The Big Moose won 40 games, the only one ever to do that in the modern era. But they weren't enough as the Sox fell a game and a half short. The NL somehow was even closer. On the last day of the year, the Cubs beat the Pirates to move a half game up on them, and the Giants beat Boston, tying the Cubs at 98-55. and 55. Both Chicago and New York had played one game fewer than the rest of the league because of a bizarre occurrence at the Polo Grounds on September 23rd. With the Cubs and Giants tied at one in the ninth inning, New York appeared to get the game-winning hit with runners at first and third and two outs. Al Bridwell singled home the winning run, and as the fans stormed the field, Fred Merkel, the rookie runner at first base, headed for the dugout. Then, recognizing that Merkel had never successfully touched second base, Johnny Evers made a mad dash for the ball to force out the runner. That's when Joe McGinty, the Giants star, intercepted the ball and hurled it into the crowd. The Cubs chased it down, all while the Giants tried to retrieve Merkel from the clubhouse. In the end, the Cubs got the force out, but it didn't really matter. Umpire Hank O'Day ruled that as soon as McGinty had touched the ball, it was interference, and the out had been recorded. By the time the field was cleared, it was too late to finish the game, so the two teams had to make it up after the season to determine the NL pennant. The White Sox and their fans were pulling for the Giants, hoping still that there would be a city series, but Frank Chance, known by now as the peerless leader, wasn't counting on it. Who ever heard of the Cubs losing a game they had to have? He asked and about a billion fans from the future raised their hands. The Cubs did win the game, though, 4-2, and they were on their way to another World Series. For the second straight year, they manhandled the Tigers, winning in five games and becoming the first-ever back-to-back World Series champs. In 1909, the White Sox were a team in transition. Ed Walsh, unhappy with the contract Comiskey had given him, was an early-season holdout. 
Nick Altrock, Frank Owen, and Jiggs Donahue, three stars of their championship team, had departed. So had their manager, Fielder Jones, who stepped down after 1908, worn out by contract disputes and his owner's interference. Comiskey was now 15 years removed from his playing and managing days, but he was having a hard time letting go. The Sox fell to 78 wins, their fewest since 1903. That started a six-year stretch in which they failed to win 80 games. The Cubs had a down year as well. They only won 104, six short of the pennant-winning Pirates. Despite eclipsing the century mark again, the Cubs were never in the race. From the start of June, they sat in second place every day, never moving up nor down. In July, the team received some bad news when word came in from Colorado that their former skipper, Frank Seeley, had died. The tuberculosis that forced him to leave the Cubs four years earlier had taken his life. Seeley survived just long enough to see the Cubs win two World Series, but he had to do it from afar. Seeley was one of the most important figures in establishing the Cubs as a powerhouse, but one of the least remembered. It took nearly a century, but in 1999, Frank Seeley was finally inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. 1909 turned out to be the first time in four years that there wasn't a Chicago team in the World Series. But even though it was a consolation prize for the Cubs, there was unfinished business in their hometown. From 1906 through 1908, they had the best three-year run of any team in Major League history. They won three pennants and two world titles. One thing they didn't do was beat the White Sox. Now they would get another chance. Citizens of Chicago who wanted to talk about the World Series found out yesterday that there were few willing to listen to their conversation. Chicago is wrapped up in its own series, wrote Ring Lardner the morning before Game 1. Indeed, it wasn't the World Series, but anticipation was still high for the crosstown battle. The Tribune's headlines said it all. Today is the day Big Clash opens, it said, with the subheader, Fans Forget All Else. A massive weekday crowd of nearly 17,000 packed into West Side grounds for the opener that pitted Big Ed Walsh against Orville Overall. Both men were excellent, but overall more so. They each tossed complete games, but the Cubs won four to nothing. Only one run was earned against Walsh. After the Cubs game one win, the two Chicago rivals had played 26 games against one another since 1903, and there had been a grand total of one home run hit an inside-the-parker back in 1905. In Game 2 of the 09 series, somebody finally hit the ball out of the park. Or did he? In the bottom of the fourth inning at the Southside Park, Billy Pertell let off for the Sox and drove a Mordecai Brown pitch to deep left field that disappeared into the crowd. Umpire Jack Sheridan was quick to rule it a homer, the first of Pertell's career. He only ever hit two more. It appeared, however, as though the ball had actually landed amongst the throng of fans lining the warning track in front of the fence and been tossed over by a fan. The Cubs fought deliriously with Sheridan and his umpiring partner Hank O'Day, but the call stood. No matter, the Cubs trailed 2-1 in the eighth inning but scored four runs off of White Sox star Frank Smith over the final two innings. They took a 2-0 series lead. Overall, the 1909 City Series was unspectacular, but it featured some of the oddest plays a baseball fan will ever see. If the bizarre home run in Game 2 doesn't do it for you, then surely the strange ending to Game 3 will. With Ed Royalbach and Ed Walsh locked up in a Jim Dandy of a pitcher's duel, the score stood at 1-1 in the ninth inning. The White Sox loaded the bases, but there were two outs as Billy Pertell once again made his way to bat. This time, Pertell didn't have to do too much. It was fall in Chicago, after all, so even though the temperature early in the series had been fluctuating between the mid-60s and low-70s, it was starting to cool off, and rain began to pelt the field. 
Royalbach, a 19-game winner for the Cubs, stood atop the mound. He stared in at catcher Jimmy Archer, getting the sign, reached his sleeve up to wipe away some water dripping off his nose, and umpire Hank O'Day threw up his hands. Balk, he called. Royalbach was stunned. The winning run came in to score for the Sox, and perhaps for the only time in baseball history, a game was lost on a runny nose. The final two games failed to live up to the excitement of the first three. Three straight dates were rained out, and by the time they finally got on the field again, the excitement had fizzled. It was cold and damp for the final two games, and only 13,000 fans total showed up to watch the Cubs win a pair of tight, low-scoring games, avenging their loss of 1906. For the second time, the Cubs were city champions in five games. It was the third straight year that the Bruins had won a postseason series, a feat they wouldn't match again until 2017. They were unable to make it four in a row, though their National League domination resumed in 1910. After another 104-win season, the Cubs canceled any plans for a postseason date with the Sox by qualifying for their fourth World Series in five years. This time, they were blown out by the Philadelphia A's in five games, and with that, the great Cubs dynasty was over. From 1906 to 1910, they won more games over a five-year period than anyone before or since. But by the dawn of 1911, Frank Chance, Mordecai Brown, Jimmy Sheckard, Johnny Kling, Joe Tinker, and Jack Pfister were all in their 30s. By mid-season, Chance pulled himself from regular on-field duty. From then on, he was primarily a bench manager. The team was also feeling the loss of Harry Steinfeld, who had been traded before the season. Johnny Evers suffered a nervous breakdown and missed more than half the year. Carl Lundgren had long since retired, and a combination of injuries and contract disputes meant the end of Orville Overall's career. Contract disputes were becoming more and more common on the west side of Chicago. Charles Murphy had taken over the team just before they went on their historic run. Now as the wheels started to fall off, it was becoming clearer that not everything was rosy in the Cubs' owner's box. I got a chance to talk with Cubs historian Ed Hardig about some of the ways Murphy was starting to make his presence felt in a negative sense. He did some odd things. I mean, we can thank Murphy for the formation of the, of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Uh, in the 1980 World Series, he actually sold the, uh, the the press area to fans because they were a better seat, and he put the he put the media you know off in a corner. Fair warning: I never met Charles Murphy and have nothing against him personally. But this is going to become a serious anti-Murphy podcast very soon, just so you know. He constantly fought with Frank Chance. Visitor's Clubhouse was always a, a travesty. It was a, pretty much a nail on the wall and, and not much else. Throughout most of their great run, the biggest problem in the Cubs' clubhouse was the rivalry between Joe Tinker and Johnny Evers. The teammates had a strong dislike for one another and never spoke off the field. But they didn't carry that over to their play. Now there were starting to be greater splinters in the entire team, and that was starting to affect the play on the field. Even though they were far from their best, the Cubs were still heavy favorites heading into the 1911 City Series. For the first time, MVP awards were handed out in each league, and Cubs outfielder Frank Wildfire Schulte was the National League's winner, so the team still had some punch. It had been another middling year for the Southsiders, but there was still one man that the Cubs feared. Ed Walsh had finished second behind Ty Cobb in the AL MVP voting, and he was prepared to open up the series on Friday, October 13th. Frank Chance rested most of his regulars in the last game of the season to ensure their readiness, and that set up a dream-pitching matchup for Game 1. Despite their team's battles in 1905, 06, and 1909, Ed Walsh and Mordecai Brown had never gone at it head-to-head. That would prove to be the headliner in this series, as the two men matched up twice, including in the opener. 
Walsh and Brown really had a lot in common. Both men came to Chicago in 1904 and pitched their team to at least one World Series. They had both worked in coal mines in a previous life. Both were able to put unique spin on the ball, Brown because of his disfigured hand, and Walsh because of his famous spitball. And perhaps most importantly, they were both future Hall of Famers. In their first ever matchup, Brown appeared as though he was about to get the best of Walsh, leading 3-1 in the bottom of the ninth inning. But that's when the Sox made their move. The rally began in an unlikely way with a misplay from Cubs center fielder Artie Hoffman. Hoffman was more commonly known by his nickname, Circus Solly. Taken from a comic strip, the nickname was a reference to the many outstanding catches fans had grown accustomed to seeing him make. This time, his gaff opened the floodgates. The White Sox loaded the bases, but with two outs, Brown appeared to strike out Raleigh Zider on a breaking ball that the Cubs thought clipped the outside corner. Brown walked off the mound in triumph, but home plate umpire Silk O'Laughlin called it a ball. Play continued and the Sox got back-to-back -back hits from Zider and Ralph Kreitz to win the game. Cubs players went ballistic after the Zider hit and eight of them were fined $25 apiece for their arguments, adding insult to injury. Game one was notable for more than just an outstanding pitching matchup. It was also the first game that the Cubs ever played at Comiskey Park, the glistening new ballpark built by the White Sox owner in 1910. Known as the Baseball Palace of the World when it opened, it redefined what a big league ballpark could be. Scheib Park had opened in Philadelphia in 1909, ushering in the new era of steel-framed ballparks, and Forbes Field in Pittsburgh had also abandoned the old wooden style before the White Sox had a chance to. Chicago had long been a hotbed of architectural innovation though, so it was only appropriate that in the city that already featured the first ever steel-framed building, the greatest of all concrete and steel baseball stadiums would be erected there as well. That was Comiskey's plan anyway, but problems arose in construction. The park had been designed by Zachary Taylor Davis and was heavily influenced by Comiskey's own idea that baseball was a game of pitching, speed, and defense. The cavernous ballpark was designed to make home runs a rarity, a feature that became obsolete in less than a decade once Babe Ruth came along. For the past 20 years, led by the premier architect of the day, Daniel Burnham, Chicago had been a forerunner in the City Beautiful movement that swept the country, emphasizing style and architecture, rather than just practicality. Comiskey was paying for the park out of his own pocket though, limiting some of the design possibilities. What plans Zachary Taylor Davis did have to beautify the South Side with this glimmering new structure were wiped out by a steelworkers strike that lasted five weeks in the spring of 1910. When construction resumed, it was put on fast forward, erasing any features that weren't strictly utilitarian. The result would never become the preeminent ballpark of its era, but in a way, sitting in the shadow of the stockyards, it was a fitting home to the blue-collar fan that Comiskey was trying to attract. Most importantly, it seated over 32,000 fans, dwarfing the old wooden park that the Sox used to play in, and the one on the west side that the Cubs still did. It was in that crotchety old west side ball field that 18,000 fans crammed in to see a classic Game 2 of the 1911 City Series. Thousands more blocked traffic to gather outside the Tribune offices on the south and west sides where play-by-play -play was flashed instantaneously out the window. In a rare offensive shootout, the two teams combined for 28 hits, and for the second straight day, the White Sox scored late. Their two runs in the top of the eighth inning finished off an 8-7 win. Now it was back to the south side where 36,308 fans showed up. It was the second biggest crowd in the history of the sport. An estimated 10,000 more were turned away. This time it was an easier White Sox victory. They scored a few runs early and Doc White pitched them to a 4-2 win and a 3-0 lead in the series.
Rain knocked out the next two days, but Game 4 was the highly touted rematch of Brown against Walsh. This one didn't live up to the billing. Brown was knocked out early, and it was an easy 7-2 White Sox win. It was the first time that an organized baseball postseason series ever was decided in a four-game sweep. Fans stormed the field and carried Ed Walsh out on their shoulders. Perhaps caught up in the exhilaration of the moment, the rest of the White Sox voted to buy a car for the Big Moose. Offensively, Amby McConnell was the star, hitting 588 for the series. It turned out to be McConnell's only city series. On the Cubs side, as if being swept wasn't bad enough, Johnny Evers was attacked by three fans as he made his way back to the dugout after the last game. In the end, aside from a busted lip, he was okay. It was a lucrative series for both teams, with attendance numbers surpassing almost every World Series that had been played to that point. The winning team's share was $875 each. The losers made 631. There was still one more game to be played in 1911. Four days after the series ended, the Cubs and Sox got together one more time for charity. 8,000 fans showed up to Comiskey Park to support St. Anne's Hospital. Brown and Walsh got to meet up one more time, but this time, they switched sides just for fun. Mordecai Brown's White Sox beat Ed Walsh's Cubs 6-2, the only time Brown ever beat Walsh. The game went 10 innings, not because it was tied, they just forgot to stop play after 9. If 1911 was the spiritual end of the Cubs dynasty, 1912 made it official. They were in a battle with Pittsburgh for second place late in the season when Frank Chance called off his dogs, declaring that he'd rather be in good fighting shape for the City Series. Chance wasn't around, however, for the final week of play. He had gone to a New York hospital to have an operation on his brain, a result of the many beanings he took during his career. While he was laid up, Charles Murphy made the declaration that Chance had resigned his post as Cubs manager. Once he learned of the news, Chance, who again was recovering from brain surgery, denied the claim that he had stepped down. I have not resigned, I never will resign, and what's more, I'm ready to sign a contract to manage the Cubs next year. This began a dramatic game of chicken. Chance returned to his post preparing for the series with the White Sox. Murphy, afraid of the public backlash, refused to fire Chance, and Chance wasn't going to step down. The two men had been feuding all year. Murphy claimed that the reason the Cubs had failed to win the pennant the last two years was that they spent too much time boozing an accusation the peerless leader vehemently denied. Chance's counter, according to Ed Hardig, is that the downfall was Murphy's fault. Murphy definitely was the, the end of the, of the Cubs dynasty. I mean, he refused to you know, get, get new players. You know, Chance would constantly go in, hey, we need this, we need that. And Murphy said, ah, well, yeah, hey, we're winning 100 games. Why, why do we need to worry about that? I mean, he, he definitely did not have a long-term vision for the team. Regardless, entering the 1912 City Series, the Cubs had a decided edge. All of the pre-series hype indicated a west side advantage everywhere except one place, the pitcher's mound. That was the domain of Ed Walsh, the man sports writer Charles Dryden once called the only man who could strut while standing still. In previous years, Mordecai Brown had been the Cubs' answer for Walsh. Not this time. Fearing he wasn't quite unpopular enough already, Charles Murphy decided halfway through the series to release Brown. The ace had been injured and wasn't expected to pitch anyway, but Murphy's release mid-series, rather than waiting until after the season, was a slap in the face to the greatest pitcher the franchise had ever seen. Some wondered if the Cubs owner was just trying to keep Brown from receiving a share of the City Series profits. On the field, the Cubs felt they had taken a series edge when they played Ed Walsh to a draw in Game 1. Walsh threw a one-hitter, but his Sox didn't score off of Cubs rookie Jimmy Lavender so the game reset the next day, spoiling the Sox star's performance. 
The next game was all even too. Twelve innings went by in game two, three of them pitched by Walsh, with still no result. Game three was finally played to conclusion, and the Cubs took a 1-0 series lead. Walsh was back on the mound for Game 4, but he was outdueled by Ed Royalbach in front of over 30,000 fans at the Westside Park. That attendance was normal for a City Series game on the South Side, but it was unheard of in the Cubs' 16,000-seat stadium. Another blowout win followed for the Cubs in the fifth game. That gave them a 3-0 series lead, and as we all know, nobody comes back from a 3-0 series deficit. The Boston Red Sox earned this celebration here at Yankee Stadium with the biggest comeback in postseason baseball history. Oh, well, apparently it's happened once. All those years before that notable comeback, Doc White was confident his Sox could pull it off in Chicago. The series is not over yet by any means, and just a little break in the luck might turn the tide in our favor, and we may yet be the city champions. I guess that's sort of confident anyway. The little break in the luck the White Sox were looking for turned out to be named Ed Walsh. He threw an 11-inning complete game in the sixth contest, and Maury Rath picked up the game-winning hit to make it a 3-1 series. The Cubs were still in good shape, and even better when it got to the eighth inning the next day, and they led the game 4-3. But the Sox came out swinging, scoring four runs on four hits off of three pitchers in the eighth inning to capture the come-from-behind win. They followed a near-identical script in Game 8, this time waiting until the ninth inning to mount a four-run rally and beat the Cubs 8-5. Ed Walsh pitched a scoreless ninth inning to wrap it up. Suddenly, the series was tied 3-3. The White Sox had won three straight games and all in extremely dramatic fashion. The comeback for the Sox had been incredible, but on the flip side, the Cubs' collapse was historic. We played about as bad baseball as I have seen us play, Frank Chance said. By now, the momentum was decidedly on the White Sox side. They sent Big Ed Walsh to the mound one more time for the decider, but he barely had to break a sweat. The Cubs had nothing left, and the Sox pounced early and often. By the end of the third inning, it was 11-0. By the end of the game, it was 16-0. Walsh had thrown another complete game. He had pitched in six of nine games in the series, 41 total innings, and allowed only six runs. Legendary numbers for a legendary postseason series. The Cubs' peerless leader couldn't stand to watch. He departed the field after the fifth inning, leaving Joe Tinker in charge. Later that week, not Tinker, but Johnny Evers was officially named the new skipper. Murphy made that announcement to the public without ever officially telling Chance that he had been let go. It was as unceremonious an end for a local legend as there could have been. Chance expressed his anger to the media, but indicated that he believed Murphy never would have made the move if the Cubs had just finished off their series win over the White Sox. There were rumors that Cubs players had taken a dive in the City Series in support of their deposed manager, but for what it's worth, Chance brushed off the idea as ridiculous. He referred to the accusers as a bunch of cheap pikers who had lost money betting on the Cubs. The 1912 City Series is one of the most amazing ever in postseason play. The Sox became the first team to overcome a 3-0 deficit and the only one for the next 92 years. For all the positives, though, the series also marked the end of some notable careers. Frank Chance, of course, for the Cubs, but less obviously at the time, it was the final ride for Ed Walsh. From 1906 through 1912, Walsh averaged 24 wins per year and had a 171 ERA. He also led the league in innings pitched four times, and his heavy workload in the 1912 City Series was the last straw. It was just too much strain on his arm. From that point on, 
he never again reached the 100 innings mark and won just 13 more games. For all intents and purposes, his career was over at the age of 31. He went out though in a blaze of glory. 1912 may have been his last stand, but he went down as one of the greatest heroes in postseason history. Next time on Chicago's Civil War, the Cubs' downfall continues, the White Sox rise commences, and a few new contenders rise to challenge both teams to city supremacy. That's all next week on Chicago's Civil War. And don't forget to visit my website, terrybonadonna.com city series for more updates on the rest of the series or to catch up on anything you've missed.